Good morning. Hope you're doing well. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. Um, hope you're doing well. By the way, I've always I've changed now that uh, if you haven't been here before, I always say I hope you're doing well because that doesn't necessarily have to elicit a response from you. Because I used to say how you doing and it was like crickets, and so I just say I hope you're doing well now. That's why I do that. So anyway, um, that was random. So <clears throat> we are studying uh, a new series now. It's called Doctrine. Uh, we started it last week, and to summarize last week's sermon, um, that was almost. 50 minutes, um, is we believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Um, That's basically, to summarize it very well, you can go listen to that on iTunes. Jack, the other elder here, um, did an awesome job expounding um, the teaching from 2 Timothy 3, uh, starting in 14 through 17. Um, And if you want to listen to that, I I encourage you to. Uh, But we use that as the first week as foundational, really to this entire doctrine series that we're doing this fall, to start there to let everyone kind of know where we are and what we believe in regard to um, the Bible, because it's going to be the foundation piece as we go through this entire doctrine series this fall. Now, this is a unique thing for us, because usually we actually pick a book of the Bible and teach through a book of the Bible. So we've, uh, we've gone through Galatians, we've gone through First Timothy, we've gone through uh, Jonah, we've gone through Haggai, we've gone through some, uh, First John, some others, um, and we are almost through the book of Matthew. We've been, we've been, we're a four and a half old church, and I think we're like 75 sermons into Matthew, um, and we're going to pick that up right around Easter time, and we're going to finish the book of Matthew this coming spring. So, um, and, and not doing a book study, which we've always done, and that's actually, if you listen to last week's sermon, um, you'll understand why we preach through books of the Bible, because we believe the Bible itself is sufficient for everything that we need to do to preach. So as long as we preach the word, um, we'll address the hard topics. We'll go through maybe some of the easier topics. But that's what you need best is the Bible and more of it and less of us if you're going to necessarily have great spiritual growth. So anyway, this time, this particular fall, we thought it would be helpful to go through some of the key doctrines um, of the church. And so I'm going to do this last, Jack did this last week, um, the other pastor here, but I wanted to uh, do it as well because I thought it was an outstanding idea. So, uh, and then we're going to jump in. So this is basically, these are three books by the same guy um, and they all kind of contain the same content. And we, we encourage every one of y'all to this fall, grab one of these uh, and read it. Now, um, the first two I'm going to introduce are more reference than anything. But um, this one is Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem, G-R-U-D-E-M. And this is really the book that Jack and I mostly read. Now, I've got other systematic texts, but this is the one that we mostly read. And most of the things that we uh, believe are pretty close in alignment with him. There's some things we might disagree with um, on secondary issues. But this is the main book that Jack and I use and use in seminary. Uh, and I encourage you, if you're you know just a go-getter, like you have nothing to do this fall but read read. Um, you, you know, don't have a job or a family or anything like that. Um, then read the 1400 page manual all the way through. Uh, more than likely, you'll probably use it for what my wife or, or some of you uh, would just say, you know, I want to know about a certain thing. And there's like 50 something chapters, 1400 pages. You just find it in the table of contents and read the, you know, the 15 pages on that particular doctrine. But I encourage you to grab that. But if that's just not going to happen for you, um, he, he took that and he condensed it down into a Bible doctrine. And this is about 400 pages. It's that in a condensed level. Um, everybody that goes through our elder candidate training for that year-long process goes through this book um, just because it's more manageable um, in, in a year's time doing 400 pages than 1,400. But if that's not for you and you're a brand new Christian and you're trying to just still figure out how to um, you know, find the books of the Bible in, the, in, in your Bible, which is good, like that's, that's really good, um, this is an even more condensed version of that, of Bible doctrine. This is called Christian Beliefs, and it's just basically 20 basic beliefs every Christian should know. All these are by the same author. And we just encourage you, wherever you are, and we trust that you know better than we do, that you just grab one of these three. Um, I think it'd be good because um, as we're teaching these sermons, Sermons every week. Um, these are sermons, and so we won't get to everything that you might be interested in. So as we're as we're writing sermons, since we're doing doctrine and not doing necessarily a book of the Bible, um, it's going to feel a little bit more like a teaching format. But since it's a sermon, we have to preach, and so we're going to do some teaching content. But we're also hopefully going to turn these teachings and drive into my heart and your heart. That's the point of preaching: is to address the heart and try to by the power of the, of the Spirit, not us, evoke faith, like trust God, believe God, and, and um, believe in Christ. That's the goal of a sermon. Now, as we're also doing that, we know that there might be people here that aren't Christians, and so certainly we want to answer some apologetic questions, some things that 
Basically, it will, I don't understand this particular part of that. We're going to do that some, but sometimes we won't have the ability to do that. And we also want to end with application. You know, what's the point of a sermon if you don't know what to do? So um, because there's so many things that we're trying to cram into 45 minutes and maybe 55 for me, um, we're not going to address everything. And that's why these books are great, because you can, uh, you can go and read some of those throughout the week and, and get some more study done or some more questions answered. Of course, you're free to email us and ask us questions and things like that. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to be looking at today the doctrine of the Trinity, which, um, you know, afterwards, the mystery of the Trinity will be completely erased, and you are going to understand the Trinity fully uh, today, and then we're all going to walk out and understand it completely. I'm being, I'm getting, I'm being sarcastic. So w- what we're going to do is try to understand as much as that's been revealed to us in the Word, and then the rest we're going to say, God, you're, you're mysterious, and that's good. And we love you. So that's, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into the Trinity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for um, this gift of being, being able to gather together. W- what a gift it is that um, all over the world, there are a lot of people that don't have this privilege of knowing that we can gather together as Christians safely and lift your name high through worship, through being under the word, through song, um, through giving, all kinds of things that we have to be able to gather together as worshipers. And I pray um, that we would not take that for granted, that we would be thankful that we have this privilege to gather together and worship you. We ask now as we turn to study this doctrine um, that there would be plenty of scripture intermingled in and that there would be less of my opinions and less of my thoughts and more of what you have to say, and more of truth. We know that the Spirit is the one that leads us into truth, and that we are desperate for Him to come now. So please, Holy Spirit, come now and fill us all. Fill me so that I can um, teach these things, but also hear, just like everyone else from you, and, and we can all be changed by what we hear. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in Titus Two one, Paul is writing to a pastor, Titus, and he writes in, past, in, in, in chapter 2, verse 1, But as for you, Titus, the pastor, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And so every pastor is under the, necess- the need of preaching what is accordance with sound doctrine. And so that's, that's one of the, the goals of this particular sermon series we're trying to do, is accomplish that, that all of us would be fully equipped to understand some of these more complicated things about, uh, not fully, but in some senses, understand some of these more complicated things about the faith. So today we're going to be looking at the Trinity. Um, and we're going to kind of be all over it, usually, as in, even Jack did it last week, um, he was able to go right into a text in 2 Timothy 3 and talk about our beliefs. But the Trinity is actually, the word Trinity is not even in the Bible at all. And so since it's not in the Bible, we're going to be using lots and lots of uh, different texts. And, and this is how the format is going to be. And I had to pray um, and ask everybody to help me pray for this, that this would happen before we start. I've got a good bit of content um, that I, I need to get through but the part I'm actually most excited about is the application at the end. I have five things that I, I'm just busting at the seam to go to right now. Um, so we're going to go through the content with, with the goal of, I think, the best part coming at the end. So bear with me as we go through this. Actually, don't bear with me. Love this content as we go through it with me. And then we will uh, get to the, to the applications of which I am majorly excited about. So the word Trinity... <clears throat> um, the best way to maybe try to understand the word Trinity is, uni- if we're going to summarize it, I mean really, really summarize it, is unity and diversity. So uh, if you go to our website uh, and we, you look up on the beliefs, you click around in there and you find what we believe about the Trinity, it, it's a little bit more expanded than unity and diversity, but this is what it says, and it kind of helps us understand what we mean by unity and diversity. It says, we believe that there is one living and true God. This is the unity, that there is one God made of one essence. We believe that there is one living and true God eternally existing. We have to make sure we understand eternity future and eternity past, um, eternally existing in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that these persons are equal in every divine perfection. Divine just means God. So in every God-like or Godness perfection, that they are completely equal. It's not like the Father is like first place and he's got the gold medal and Jesus is second place with the, with the silver and the Holy Spirit's the bronze. Like, that's not it. They're all equal, um, equally God. They are all equal in divine perfection and that they execute 
distinct, so they have different offices. They do different things, even though they're all 100% God. Um, they distinct but harmonious offices and work of creation. So they did different things in creation. Providence and keeping the world sustained and redemption. And that's, redemption is just the salvation of man. Um, so they do different things in that. Now, J.I. Packer, he's a theologian. When he's, he's writing and he's um, imploring us all to think well on the Trinity, uh, he, he says this, whenever a Christian comes to the Trinity, because it's so mysterious, we can easily just say, oh, this is so complicated, I give up. This is what he says. Um, the historic formulation of the Trinity seeks to circumscribe and safeguard this mystery. So the reason why the word Trinity has been defined a certain way is so that we can safeguard and, and have some, some definite things that we're going to say about this mystery. He says, but not to explain it completely, because that's beyond us. But we need to say some things that are true. And and the truth of this confronts us with perhaps, here it is, the most difficult thought that the human mind has ever been asked to handle. So we, in J.I. Packer's summation, going to confront the most difficult thought in the human mind, the Trinity today. So I'm glad you're here. Um, and he, said, he says it's not easy, but it is true. It's not easy to fully understand the Trinity, but it is true. So um, the history of the word uh, first. The history of the word Trinity. The word Trinity in Latin, Trinitas, was probably first penned by a guy named Tertullian around the year 200. He lived from about 150 to 220. Um, and about 50 years into his life, he probably became a Christian somewhere around there and started writing. He also used these words um, persona in Latin, person, and substantia, substance. And so as he's trying to understand the Trinity, he uses this word Trinity. Now you can ask yourself, 200? I mean, Jesus was died in, in 30 it took the church 170 years to get around to start writing things about what they believed. Well, um, it was a lot different then. They were running, and they were being persecuted, and they were being killed. And um, it's not really easy to write a lot of systematic theology when most of the pastors are doing funerals and trying not to be killed as well. Uh, but what happened is uh, Tertullian wrote this in around 200, and then a little bit later, there was a guy named Constantine. Uh, there's debate in the end of whether he was a Christian or not, but what he's kind of known as in the round of the year 300 is making it easier for Christians to be able to practice their faith and not necessarily be persecuted so heavily. And when that happened, around 325, there was something called the Council of Nicaea, where Christians were able to come together and start putting together some definite statements about what they believe. You probably heard the Nicene Creed. That just comes from the, Nic- the Council of Nicaea. That was around 325. There wasn't a whole lot said about the Holy Spirit there. But then as they got to 381, Constantinople, they, wrote, they had a Council of Constantinople where um, most historians say that right then is whenever the Trinitarian view had been solidified. And so... Tertullian, back to 200, as he wrote, was trying to explain this trinity. And he's, again, one of the first people trying to explain what it's, what it's all about. And this is what he said. One, the, the God, is all and all of the persons are one. But unity, that is, of substance. So these three persons are still unified in substance. So he's one of the first persons to start talking about substance or essence. That they all contain the essence of God and that they're one essence but three persons. It's really key. One of the main things is one essence Three persons. While the mystery of the stewardship is still guarded, which distributes the unity of this one God into a trinity, placing in their order three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, which I'm all about reinstituting Holy Ghost if we want to start doing that instead of Holy Spirit. Sometimes it's just more fun to say. Um, Three, however, not in condition. These three, however, are not necessarily three gods. He said not in condition or in degree, not in substance, that they're three essences of God, they're three persons, Um, Not in power, but in aspect, yet of one substance, of one condition, and of one power, inasmuch as he is God, who from these degrees and forms and aspects are reckoned under the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. So this is as he's trying to describe what the Trinity is. He's using language like they're one essence and they're, they're three persons, and he's calling them the Trinity. So as we read that and as we understand the Council of Nicaea and even the Council of Constantinople um, in 381, now there's, there's three essential statements for us as Christians to understand when talking about the Trinity. Three essential statements, and these are things that are all, all true for us. The first is that God is three persons. God is three persons. So there's one God, which that's another one, but he exists in three persons, meaning there are distinct persons 
personal offices or activities that each person in the Godhead holds. So if we're going to talk about personhood, we should understand that. If we're saying God is three persons, let's understand what personhood is. Because it might not be necessarily what you think. Usually when we say person, well, that means they're a human. And they've got ten fingers and ten toes. And they have a mouth and a brain. Um, but this is what we're talking about when we're saying personhood. Because we all would, would agree that the Father is not a human. The Holy Spirit is not a human. And God the Son, um, from eternity past, entered into and became a human um, 2,000 years ago, but from eternity past bef- up until that time, he wasn't. And so he is now fully God and fully man and will be a man, and 100% man and 100% God for, for eternity into the future. But at one point, he was not. He, he became man. And so what we mean by saying personhood is that the personhood of the Trinity does not mean that they're humans, like the Father and the Spirit, but that each person, each member of the Trinity thinks they, like, all persons think and act and feel and speak and relate. So this is what we're talking about when we say persons in the fact that they have the qualities that a person would have in that they think, they act, they feel. They are not, um, the Holy Spirit is not an impersonal force. We don't use the word force, um, like Star Wars or something. Um, gravity is a force, but gravity doesn't have feelings. You know, we don't make fun of gravity and he walks away and he pouts. Um, electricity is a force, but electricity doesn't think, right? So it's not a, the Holy Spirit is not a force. He's not, and by the way, and this is just a subcategory, but um, the Holy Spirit is a he. He's not an it. It's not like cousin it over there with the hair all in his eyes. And we're like, we don't know what to do with him. He's just, you know, that bizarre guy we don't talk about. The Holy Spirit is a he. He's a person, and, which means he thinks, acts, feels, speaks, and relates. So... This is important. This means the three persons of the Trinity from eternity past, before any of us were ever created or man was ever created, have been perfectly thinking, acting, feeling, speaking, and relating, and loving each other perfectly. So now I'm going to maybe show my hand a little bit when we get into the, app, to the application section, which means... If that's the case, that they have from eternity past always been thinking and acting and feeling and speaking, relating and loving perfectly, if we want to know how to do those things, the only proper thing for us to do is to understand to the best that we can how they do that and let that be the way that we do those things. So the way that we think, act, feel um, is by looking at the Trinity and how it's always happened. And then when we understand that, to the degree that we can, then we know how to do those things. Now, we're going to get into that application in a little bit. So the first thing is that God is three persons. That's an essential statement. When these, we're talking about these essential statements. It's key to understand this. Um, these are the things that we know that we can say. And as we say these things, um, sometimes things will come up that, are, that contradict that. And when they come up then, and contradict that, we can say, that's not right because these th- three things are, are absolutely true. And as we study those we can only study these to a certain degree, but we have to stop at some place and put on the brakes and say, I can't go any further. And that's just the way you have to understand the Trinity is these things are true. Uh, I don't understand them completely, but I know that they're true. And when things that come and say something contradictory to that, I can say that's not true because of that. But we're never going to be able to dive into these three statements as fully as we want to and understand them. We simply can say these things. So the first one is that uh, God is three persons. The next one is that each person is fully God. And here's what I mean by that. Is any essential characteristic that's necessary for deity, that just means being God, any essential characteristic that's necessary that, for deity, it belongs to every one of the three persons in the Trinity. They're all God. Each person is fully God. It's not like God's really fully God, the Father, and he kind of like, Jesus stands beside him, and it's kind of just comes into him a little bit, so he's like 98% God, and we just say he's God. Um, But we also um, need to know that when we say that each person is fully God, we're not saying that Jesus or the Holy Spirit um, became God. This would be a teaching of the Mormon church, that Jesus was a created being and that he eventually became God out of radical obedience to the Father of of coming down. We don't believe that either. We believe that all three persons of the Trinity have eternally existed forever and that they're all God and they've always been all fully God. So each person is fully God. 
The next one is this, and this is where it gets a little confusing maybe in, in our minds. God is three persons. Each person is fully God. The last one is there is one God. Three persons, one God. And this means that there are three persons made up of one essence. Made up of one essence. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, The Lord our God, the Lord is one. So we don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God in three persons. Let me just give you a couple, and I don't have a whole lot of time. We're going to do this actually next week when I teach on Jesus and the next week when I teach on the Holy Spirit specifically. But I want to give you just a couple texts that will show us from the Bible that um, Jesus and the Holy Spirit are also God. So I think that everybody, and there's never really been any people that disagreed with the Father being God. I mean, that's just usually always accepted, but the, the questions have been more on, the, on Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So we're just going to start for time's sake. Everybody agrees that the Father is, is 100% God, but let me show you a couple places in the Bible that affirm the deity or godness or uh, being God of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. The first one is John eight fifty eight. John eight fifty eight. This is where we're going to see that Jesus is God. In John eight fifty eight, Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees, if you don't know who they are, they just weren't really big fans of Jesus at all. Um, and so in verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you. So the Pharisees were well acquainted with all the stories in the Old Testament. They knew who Abraham was. And so he's, he's trying to say something to them that he know will upset them. And he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. When you read that, you might not, you know, just read that. Okay, he's saying, I existed, I existed before Abraham. What's he saying there? Well, he's actually referencing Exodus 3.14, um, where Moses is having a conversation with God, and he's saying, who, who should I say would send me? Moses says to God, who should I say sent me? And God answers back, tell them Yahweh, in, in, our, in our language, I am. Tell them I am. Tell them Yahweh sent you. So here, Jesus knows that. Um, anybody that calls themselves I am is saying that they're God. And so he's looking at the Pharisees who knew all those stories in the Old Testament, and he says, um, before Abraham was I am. Before Abraham existed, I was God and I have eternally existed. And that's what he tells them. And we know that that's exactly what he's trying to say because of the next verse, the response of the Pharisees. If, if he wasn't claiming to be God, the Pharisees, if he was just saying, you know, I have been around a while, then the Pharisees wouldn't freak out. But in the very next verse in 59, it says, so they picked up stones to throw at him. So, I mean, that's just so strange. But anyway, like, they're like, you're saying you're God, so we're getting rocks, and we're just going to start throwing them at you. So they didn't like that um, because he was claiming to be God. So this is one text, and there are just tons where uh, we can see that Jesus claims to be fully God and that he is God. The other one for the Holy Spirit is in Acts 5. I mean, again, there are so many texts that we could use to, to show the deity of the, of the Son and Spirit. But I'm just going to use these two. One's in Acts 5. What's going on here? This is after the resurrection. Peter is kind of pastoring a church. And there's a couple church members in there that say, hey, we're going to sell this particular land. They tell Peter this. We're going to sell this land. And after we sell it, then we're going to give all the money we make on this land to, uh, to the church. And Peter's like, okay. And so their names are Ananias and Sapphire. So they go. And I don't know why, but maybe they sold it for more than they thought. They got a good deal. And they're like, whoa, we got all this money. You know what? I think we're going to hold a little bit back. You know, we're going to go to Pier 1 and go to the gun store, and we're going to hold this money back. We're, just, we're going to tell Peter we only sold it for this, and then we're going to give him that, and we're going to get this other stuff, and we're going sizzler. And so um, what happens is um, Peter knows that they lied. Peter knows that they lied. It's not like Peter said, give us all the money. It's that they said, we're going to give you this money, and so Peter's just holding them to what they said. And so um, in Acts chapter 5, you can see it here in verse 3, they're busted. And verse 3 says, But Peter says to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Almost the same language, by the way, as Judas. Um, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Here it is, to the Holy Spirit. So we see here that there's a, there's a mention of the Holy Spirit. And he said, You've lied to the Holy Spirit. Now let's keep, let's keep tracking. Why have you uh, lied to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself the part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have con contrived this deed in your heart? Here it is. You have not lied to men, but to God. So Luke, the writer of Acts, equates here with verses 3 and 4. If you lie to the Holy Spirit, you have lied to God. And so there's, there's one among many to show us that the Bible affirms 
that Jesus and the Holy Spirit are both God. Now, um, here's what happens whenever people walk outside the lines of those particular three essential statements is we get into heresies or fallacies or accidental heresies. Now, this happens, uh, and I'm going to illustrate it for you. We hear very familiar things, and whenever we hear these very familiar things, they become ingrained in us, and we never forget them. We just never forget them. I'm going to prove it to you. You ready? In West Philadelphia, on the playground is where I spent... Chilling out, maxing, relaxing all, cooling out, shooting some b-ball outside the school when they were up to no good. Started making trouble in my neighborhood. Mom got scared. We're doing it. Come on. All right, we'll stop. All right. So my point is this, all right? You've heard that so many times. Even if you've never seen the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, like, you've heard that song so many times, you just have it ingrained in your head, if you're like me. How would you take a taxi from... Philadelphia to California with the guy that stinks that long. I don't understand. Anyway, wouldn't that be expensive? But anyway, um, my point is this, that you hear things so many times that it's just ingrained and ingrained and ingrained that it becomes, you know, you know it. You, and what happens is whenever people start using analogies or teachings, these, these teachings, they, they become ingrained in your head. If they're not true, you start believing wrong things. And it just becomes, it, 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 become, it comes from repetition. It comes from hearing things over and over, um, like the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme song. And what happens is, if they're not correct, you'll start believing those things and not necessarily question them because you heard them so many times. So like, for example, talking about the Trinity. I'm sure you've heard this, and maybe you, you might think this is actually a good illustration. Um, so some people have talked about the Trinity by saying, oh yeah, the Trinity. It's like H2O. You've got... H2O, and you've got ice, and you've got water, and you've got vapor. And so you've got all three, but they're all H2O. Well, the problem is that um, that's called modalism. And if you lived 1,500 years ago, you might have been burned at the stake. So um, we, we don't do that here, by the way. That's not what we do here. But again, that's, that's actually because you've heard that so many times. Um, you think, well, that's a good illustration, but it's actually not. Or maybe you've heard this one. Um, so if I had... Uh, my wife and my kids and my dad all in the room, I could say, yeah, I'm one person, but I'm also, to all three of them, I'm a husband and I'm a father and I'm a son to all three of them. But again, that's, that's still not the right way to think about the Trinity. But sometimes when we hear these illustrations, um, we start getting misunderstandings. So I want to, as we're going, talk about a couple misunderstandings or I call them accidental heresies. I don't think anybody intentionally like starts out by saying, I want to start a heresy on the Trinity. Like, I don't think anybody does that. So I think it's all accidental. But the first one would be modalism, which is the H2O one, what I talked about, where we say we have one person in three modes. And here's, here's the problem. Back to our little illustration. The problem with that, and I'm not scientific, so I'm going to get words wrong, but, you know, I don't know science very well. I don't understand science very well. So you have the H2O, and I, I'm assuming that's a molecule or something. Um, it, can only be, it can only be one of those things at once. That little H2O molecule can only be a solid, and if it melts, then it becomes a liquid, and it's no longer a solid, and then, or it evaporates, and it's only now a gas. But it's not all three at once, this little... And see, what we're saying is that we're not saying it's one person in three modes, some people believe that, like, it's just God, and he kind of shows himself up in the Old Testament predominantly as father, and then after that, he kind of backs off as father, and then he becomes the second mode, and he predominantly shows himself as the, the son in the New Testament, and then after he resurrected, now just this one guy still is showing up now in this church age just as the Holy Spirit. It's just, it's just one guy, but he's three modes. This is not true. This is not the way we believe. It's actually, um, that would be a false way to understand it, that he's one God in three persons. All three persons always exist. It's not like he's sometimes God, then sometimes Jesus, and then sometimes the Spirit. He's 100% God, always existing. 100% Jesus, always existing. 100% the Spirit. All three persons always exist at the same time, but yet there's still one God. Again, there's mystery in there, I know, but he's not one person in three modes. The other one um, and there's many we could say. The other one is called tritheism. Just just means three gods. And this is a misunderstanding when we say, hey, they're all three gods. When you say, well, they all three must be three separate gods then. They're just like three gods in a cluster. And this is misunderstanding. Verses like Deuteronomy 6.4, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That God is of one essence made up of three persons. He's still one God. 
It's not like if there were three gods in a cluster, eventually one of them would have a different idea about the way things should operate, and then they would break apart. And, you know, that's not, that's not what we believe. We believe in one God in three persons. Now, um, I want to give some Old Testament and some New Testament support on the Trinity. We talked about some of the historical ideas. We talked about what are the three main essential things we understand. We talked about what are some of the accidental heresies that, that could happen. Um, but you might be saying, is there really biblical support for this word Trinity since it doesn't even exist? This word Trinity doesn't even exist in the Bible. Um, I'm going to show you some, some support from the Old Testament and New Testament. There are tons of verses that we could do. I'm only going to do a few from both. But I want to start... Um, in the Old Testament, in Genesis 1-1, from the very beginning, we'll see um, the Trinity. I won't use that word. In, in the very beginning, it says in Genesis 1-1, this won't be on the screen, and then I'll have some more. But we have to get this down to be able to understand the rest of creation. In Genesis 1-1, we will be going over the doctrine of creation soon, by the way. In the beginning, God, we'll all affirm that there's God. Okay, that must be at least the Father, Right? created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep. And here, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So we can see on the surface, in the very first verses of the Bible, the Father and the Spirit of God. We're just saying, well, where's, where's Jesus? Where's the second, the second person of the Trinity? Well, in the Hebrew, um, and I can't remember the, 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 the name, but there's a, t- there's a text that Hebrew scholars, as they would read this, um, the Targum... Ah, I can't remember it. Um, but in the Hebrew, part of verse 1 can also, uh, and it's been kind of just universally understood, that in verse 1 it says, in the beginning God created. It can also be uh, translated along with the firstborn, could say, created the heavens and the earth. So that mimics what we hear in Colossians 1.15, where it says uh, Jesus was the firstborn of all creation uh, in Colossians 1.15. And so it's implicitly in the Hebrew, it's not necessarily in our English Bible, and there's been almost universal understanding that from Hebrew scholars that the, in the firstborn can be uh, in there in this particular text. So in the very beginning, in the very beginning we hear we have in the beginning God and along with the firstborn created the heavens and the earth and the spirit was without form and void in the darkness and we see the Holy Spirit of God hovering over the face of the waters. Now why is that important? The reason why that's important is in this exact same chapter when they start talking about creation, it helps us understand <laughs> Um, whenever we see the first person plural, and I'll show you what I mean. The first verse here is in Genesis one twenty six. If if we just had a one person, one God understanding, Genesis one twenty six wouldn't make any sense to us. And maybe you've never even recognized this, but Genesis one twenty six, as God, the Trinity, is creating, look what it says. By the way, um, just so you know, uh, God here, Elohim, um, in the Hebrew, is a, is a plural word. It's like putting an S on the end of our word. Elohim is, is the plural version of God. But by the way, Genesis one twenty six. then God said, let us... Well, who's he talking to if there's not a trinity there? If it's just one God, one person, this us, our, our doesn't make any sense. But since we have a right understanding of Genesis one one that there's the Father, Son, and Spirit there, he says, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Genesis 3.22, almost the exact same thing. Then God said, um, Behold, the man, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. There's another time in Genesis 11 where it says, Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language. This was at the Tower of Babel. Uh, there's another place in, he, in Isaiah 6. This is whenever uh, God's asking Isaiah, Who's going to go and do my work? Uh, and, and Isaiah says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here am I, send me. And so there's Old Testament and there's, there's other places that we could go even more expansively um, and even more explicitly in the, in the Old Testament here where we can see proof of the existence of the Trinity in the Old Testament. It just doesn't use the word Trinity. Um, in the New Testament, there's no difference. There's also even more explicitly uh, verses that will show up and show us the, the Trinitarian uh, teaching, even though it won't use that word in the New Testament. The first one is that Jesus is baptism. So John the Baptist, the guy that eats all the bugs, he's baptizing people. And um, so Je- Jesus is about to start his public ministry in Je- uh, Matthew 3. And there, <clears throat> after Jesus comes out of the water, it says this in Matthew three sixteen and 17. 
And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up from out of the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God, here's the Holy Spirit, descending down like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, here's the Father, the voice from heaven, the Father says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So here we see a picture of the entire Trinity at Jesus' baptism as he begins his, his entire ministry. Um, as a bookend, maybe, to Matthew, um, in some senses, right there in Matthew 28, at the very end of Jesus' ministry, before he goes into heaven, he ascends into heaven, he's given the disciples uh, the last teaching of what he wants them to do, the great commission, as we know it, to go make disciples. He says it in Matthew 28 and 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, this is one of the most explicit places, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So here we see in the New Testament, again, there are tons, two places at least. I have another one in John 3, and I just don't have time to go into that one, but all three are present there. There's tons of places that they're, that they're present. So now, we've talked about the, the oneness of them, and we've talked about their three persons. Now what I want to do, and, and the fact that they're all three God, what I want to do is we explore a little bit, I mean, just to touch a little bit on those three persons and talk about what are some of the differences. Although they're all God, and so they carry and have all the characteristics that would make them deity, they also, the three persons, have a little bit of distinction. And so I want to talk about that. I'm not going to do too much, because again, next week there's a lot. But the Father... Some of the things about the Father that are different, and this doesn't diminish or take away from his deity at all. The first one is the Father, and he planned redemption. Um, we could say tons, but these are just a few. The Father planned redemption, and he also sent his Son. We see that in the Scriptures over and over, that he sent his Son. Um, and then something that's unique to the Son is that he actually obeys the Father's plans, and he actually is the one who accomplishes redemption. He's the one that goes to the cross bears all the wrath of the Father that was put on him for us. And so he's the one that actually accomplished redemption. And then we have the office of the Spirit now, um, which is that he was also sent by the Father and the Son. Huge controversy um, about a thousand years ago on that. If you're really interested in the great church schism of 1054, you can go look that up. But there was a huge controversy where the Eastern and Western church finally just completely split off. The East Orthodox church said the Holy Spirit is only sent by the Father and the the Western Church, which was at the time the Catholic Church until the Reformation 500 years later, said, no, no, the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. I know you're really interested in that. Um, but uh, the Holy Spirit is sent by, I believe, the Father and the Son. He applies redemption to us all. He's the one that applies this, this work that was accomplished by the Son to us. And he also brings it to completion in senses where he is the one who is the active agent in convicting us, leading us into truth, and explaining to us the gospel, the simple message, but yet profound, but still simple message of the gospel, the good news of Christ, so that we can come to know Jesus and be saved by him. So he is um, actively carrying out that plan that was accomplished by the Son. So um, you heard me reference this word gospel, and I'll just, uh, I want to explain to you what this is. Uh, the gospel just simply means good news. And to maybe use the exact same language that I was using here, talking about the offices, which is redemption. Um, the gospel is, just means good news, and it basically, uh, at its core, means this. Every single one of us are born sinners. And I don't think I need to convince anyone in the room that you have in your life done things that we all know are sinful, that are um, not in congruence or in um, measuring of what the Lord expects of us. Whether you, whether you know the Lord or not, um, we all know that there's expectations of God. He's put them before us. And we know that when we sin, that, that feeling that you feel of conviction is evidence, actually, that God exists. But also evidence that you know that you're a sinner. Um, so in, in Ephesians 1.7, this is what happened. Since we sinned against an infinite and holy God, the only thing that can happen is that we would be infinitely punished. Even though our sin doesn't seem to be big, because he is so vast and he is so expansive and he's infinite, anything done against an infinite God has to be, because he's God, has to be dealt with with infinite punishment or else he's not God. And so he is going to, for those that don't trust Christ, infinitely punish rightly, justly, um, punish those that don't trust Christ, that don't believe in Jesus, that, that sin against him. They will be infinitely punished, which means they will forever be separated from God and eternally punished. We believe they go to hell. Um, but there's a, there's a way that we cannot have to go to hell, but that we can receive forgiveness and 
be eternally with Jesus. And that is this. Since we've sinned against an infinite God, the, a perfect payment, an infinite payment, God himself can be the only right payment, has to go before us and die in our place. We're supposed to now die because of our sin, but God has made a way instead of us going to hell forever. He takes his son, who is perfect, and he goes and dies in our place. That's the whole point of the cross, is that Jesus would go and be that sacrifice, that perfect payment, and die for us. And if we trust in what he's done for us, if we trust that he died on the cross for us, and believe and confess our sin, we are now, by God, declared to be completely righteous and holy. The way Ephesians 1, 7, 7, Ephesians, uh, 1, 7 says is, um, in him, that's Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. This is not some trespasses. This is all of our trespasses. And the reason why this is called the gospel or good news is because this is the best news in the world. This is the best news ever. We will not have any of our sins ever counted against us. All we will ever know with the one that created us and loves us more expansively and vastly than we could ever conceive, all we'll ever know is right, perfect, relationship and love because he put his son forward to take our punishment beautiful just unbelievably beautiful and he says he did this through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according why did he do it according to the richness of his grace towards us because he loves us he was not obligated to do this but he did it because he loves us out of grace and if anyone ever believes and trusts and lives for him they will be saved and the reason why I say lives for him is this. I've never met anybody that understands the gospel and says, okay, that's good. Now I'm going to do whatever I want. <laughs> no one talks like that. When we understand fully what Christ has done, all we want to do is live for his glory. And we do have this Romans 7 situation where the things that we don't want to do, we sometimes do, and the things we want to do, we don't always do. But the overall, the overall trajectory of our lives is, we want to live a life that worships Jesus with everything we have because of what he's done. And so that's the gospel. That's the amazing news that we have. And this is what each person of the Trinity does. The Father planned it, the Son accomplished it, and the Holy Spirit is the one that finds us, opens up our eyes of these truth, this beautiful truth of the gospel, convicts us, but also leads us into truth and shows us the beauty of Christ. That's his work. That's all I'm going to say. There's more for next week. So some of you might be asking this question, Christian or non, you might be asking this question. Um, what if I don't necessarily believe all that? Or maybe as a non-Christian, you might say, uh, is it essential that I really believe in the deity of Jesus and, and believe that Jesus is God and, and the Holy Spirit's God? Is it essential? Um, let me answer some of those questions for you. I think it is. I, I don't think, I know it is. Let me, let me give you some reasons why. Um, the first one is exactly what we just talked about. The reason why Jesus has to be God and we need to believe that he's God is the atonement. That is the payment made for us. Jesus, if he was created or a creature, then he would not be able to bear the full wrath of God to save us. Only God could do that. And so the atonement's at stake if we don't believe Jesus is God. The next one is justification. Or God's declaration that you're now completely in perfect standing with him. If Jesus was created, you would have ample reason to doubt your justification. And so your justification's at stake. The next one is prayer. We pray to God in the name of Jesus because we believe that he's God. Why would we pray in a creature's name? A created person's name? That wouldn't make any sense. And, and another reason is worship. We believe that it's only true and the biblical teaching is that we worship God, not anything that's created. And the Bible has lots to say about creating, uh, worshiping created things. That's called idolatry. And the Bible is, has a lot to say against idolatry. So that's some of the reasons why Jesus is, de is deity. The Holy Spirit, um, I'm going to turn to Jonathan Edwards to help us understand this. And let me just say, okay, we have officially reached the hardest part of the sermon to understand, okay? Um, you thought Tertullian was hard. If you just want to get confused, go read some Edwards. And you'll just be like, man, this guy's confusing. Um, but we're going to look at this. And I think that as we look at this, this is one of the best, I think, explanations of the Trinity. It's going to help us understand not only the Son, but also the deity of, 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 of the Holy Spirit. Um, and I'm going to do my best to try to explain it. And 
you've probably noticed I use my hands a lot, and I'm going to end up using my hands a lot with this, because I think that using my hands helps us actually understand what Edwards is saying. So forgive me for looking crazy. So it says, the Father is the deity. That means he's God. The Father is the deity, subsisting or existing always eternally in the prime, unoriginated. He never had a beginning. He's, the Father is the unoriginated and most absolute manner or the de- deity in its direct existence. So the Father is God. And everything that we said about it, what it means to be God, unoriginated, eternally God. And this is what he says about the Son. The Son is the deity, eternally, generated by God's, the Father's, understanding or having an idea of himself. But this has always eternally happened. And he says that it's, um, this, the Son is the deity eternally generated by God the Father's understanding or having an idea of himself and insisting in that de- idea so much so that it actually stands forth into a second person of the Trinity is the Son. Because as God understanding conceives who he is infinitely, that, that idea has so much power being that it's God, it actually stands forth as its own person, the, tr- the second person of the, of the Trinity, the Son. And then he says this, and the Holy Ghost is the deity. Um, so the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit is also God. Um, the Holy Ghost is the deity subsisting in the act or the divine essence flowing or being breathed out by the Father to the Son and from the Son back to the Father. This love that exists, this This love that exists between the Father and the Son is so real. God's infinite love and delight in himself, in his Son, is so real that it actually stands forth as a third person in the Trinity because it's God and it's infinite um, that it actually stands forth into the third person of the Trinity. And the whole divine essence does truly and distinctly subsist in both the divine idea, which is Jesus, and also the divine love, which is the Holy Spirit, that each of them are properly distinct persons. That's pretty amazing. That's, when I read that at first, I was like, what did you say? Um, so like, I mean, this is an amazing idea as he's explaining the Trinity. So that this means God's proper understanding of himself is the Son, and it stands forth as its own person. So therefore, as we look at that, we should say, God has right knowledge of himself, the Son. We should have and push ourselves to have as much right knowledge of God as we can. But also in the third person of the Trinity, that there's this, there's this love, there's this, as, as he says, it's flowing and breathed out. There's such a delight and infinite love in himself that he has so much love that it stands forth of the third person. When we look at that, we say, not only do he have right knowledge, God have right knowledge of himself, he also has right affection for himself, infinite delight. So when we look at that, we should say, we should not only strive to have all the knowledge of God that we can properly, we should also strive to have all the proper affection or love for God, because that's what he is doing inside the Trinity. So Piper, as he's... Um, kind of helping us understand John Piper, a contemporary theologian, understand Edwards. He says, The Spirit of God is the river of love and delight flowing between the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit is the, he uses the phrase, esprit de corps, quoting C.S. Lewis, basically which just means the inspired common enthusiasm among the members of the Trinity. The, the Holy Spirit is that excited enthusiasm of the Godhead In responding to each other's infinite glory, the Father and the Son put all that they are into the act of love of one another. And therefore, the Spirit is all that they are and exists as a person in its own right. Yet one, the Spirit is yet one still with the Father and the Son. And then, I mean, his writing takes this interesting turn. He stops there and you think he's going to say more about the Trinity. And he stops and then he starts talking about us. And this is what he says. This is pretty interesting. He says, we grope, we stammer. So what he's saying is, as we talk about the Trinity, we try our hardest. And as we do it, we try to get a good picture of it. And he says, we grope, we stammer, we reach for ways to talk about and say this mystery. Why do we do that? Because something has gone before us. Namely, love has gone before us and given us this perfect illustration of what love is. And he says, lastly, he says, falling in love always precedes the love poems. Like, what does that mean? I think this is what he's saying. All right, this isn't the Bible, so this, I think this is what he's saying. Um, think about your own uh, life. Uh, and, you know, 
you're in college age and you're finally finding the one. You're finding the one. You don't, and it's all mushy and it's in that newness, like, oh, they're so wonderful. They have nothing wrong with them ever until you get married and you figure out they have things wrong. Um, but uh, you don't, before you meet them, you don't start writing love poems to them. You're like, oh, I love your green eye. Well, I don't even know you. I don't know your eyes. So you're not writing all these mushy love poems too. First, falling in love happens, and then the love poems happen. And what he's saying is, for us, when we look at the Trinity and we start to the best of our ability, understanding this amazing affection that flows between the Father and Son, standing forth as the third person, that we now can properly understand how much God loves us and start with the best of our ability, evoking ourselves, worshiping, and giving ourselves to love Him back. Wow, that we understand it. We don't understand it fully. We, we stammer. We try to talk about it. It's the same thing like whenever you come up, tell me about that girl you just met. Or you're like, oh, she's so... Or you talk about the, the girl. You're like, tell me about him. He's perfect. He's just got all... The, like, you, you, I can't even explain it. He's just so... Like, we know what we're saying. Like, we can't explain it, but we just... That's my girl voice. Like, we try, I don't know. Um, I'm trying to de- describe them. I just, it's all in my head, and they're just... I feel, and I can't... And this is exactly what he's saying. When we talk about God, I mean the infinite God that you can't describe, there's this understanding, 1 John 4, 7, God is love, that now has come upon you that the proper understanding of who God is and what love really is, is on me. We grope and we stammer as we try to talk about what this love is because it has so invaded my heart. All I want to do with the best of my ability is return this love that's being given me back because God has found me. Because God has saved me. So this is what he's talking about. Um, Because this has happened. These are my applications. Because we finally understand who the Trinity is in a sense. Um, I have five applications. We're going to go through them decently fast. But as we're looking at these applications, they're all going to be formed by this one question. You know, the lens by which we're going to look at these applications is this. How can we, as Christians, more accurately reflect the Trinity in everyday life. We've, we've understood as much as we can about this unity and diversity and the love, the proper love and proper feelings and proper everything that they've always had from eternity past. And if that's all the case, how can we, knowing that that's always existed and that's what we're supposed to look at for how we're supposed to conduct our lives, how can we, how can we properly reflect the Trinity as Christians in our everyday life? The first one is this, community. The Trinity has been the first community and has always existed in community from eternity past. The Trinity community has never not been a loving community. Double negatives, I know. But the Trinity has never not been a loving community. It has always existed as a loving community. So when we look at, we want to know what community is. We look at the Trinity who's always existed and thought and felt and loved um, so much so that it actually stands forth as the third person of the Trinity. And we look at that and we say, that's what community is. So when we look at our lives, this means that we should look to the Trinity to know what community should look like. And so we should make significant and earnest and deep loving relationships in our own lives. That's what exists in the Trinity. So we should push ourselves to live as connected as we can in community with people. We have to push ourselves. That's what most accurately reflects the Trinity as a Christian, is that you lived not as an island way off by yourself, but in a community with other Christians existing and loving and caring and serving and being with them because this is what's always happened. So that means... If this is your church, Remedy Church, or really whatever church you go to, your next step is then to join a community group. Most accurate reflection of the Trinity that you can do if this is your church is to join a community group. And you might say, well, I don't know how to join a community group. I'm going to talk about that. But you might say, I'm actually in a community group. Fud, got that one. What's the next application? Well, let me keep going for a second. Um, If if you're in a community group, the next thing you need to do is join what we call gospel-centered discipleship groups. You have your community group, which is a group of 12 or 15 people, co-ed. We also have things that are called gospel-centered discipleship groups, where it's just one gender, and you dive in deeper into life and the Bible and prayer and thinking about lost people around you. This is another discipleship arm of the church where it's key for you to have those couple people that know you more deeply than anybody. It takes time for that to happen. It takes time. It could take years. 
but you need to most accurately reflect the Trinity by seeking those things out and living a connected life. Some of you are saying, I got that one too, Fudd. All right, last one. Um, You need to also be actively inviting other people into the community at Remedy. If you're doing those first two, whatever, what's your next step? I don't know. Joining one, being in a, what we call a GCD, Gospel Center Discipleship Group. If you're already doing both of those, be an active agent and getting other people connected into the community. Whatever church they go to, that's how we most accurately reflect the Trinity as Christians. Next one is communication. The Trinity has been in perfect communication since eternity past. And it stands for a model for us. So that means for us, I think two things. It means for us that we should obviously be in perfect striving to and as much perfection of, of communication that we can. Meaning the primary way that we communicate should be face to face. The Trinity is not texting each other up there. It's not like the Holy Spirit's over, you know, in Egypt and God the Father is chilling at Australia and they're having to shoot texts to each other. How's it going over there? Good. And what time is it? Ah, that's not how it happens. Face-to-face, I know that's a little bit weird. Face-to-face communication perfect, perfectly has always existed in the Trinity, which means for us, um, the primary way that we most accurately reflect the Trinity is that we are not um, letting social media or whatever uh, lead the way that we communicate. God wants, to lead, wants us to lead face-to-face lives. But also, another one under tr- uh, community, our communica- communication is that we also communicate truthfully. They, they're always telling the truth. And so when we face-to-face communi- communicate with each other, it must be truthfully. Um, so your next step is, think of that person right now. Could be your spouse, could be your brother or sister, could be that crazy uncle, could be the neighbor that just gets on your nerves. There's someone in your life that you are not communicating with as well as you should. That's your next step. This week, start communicating with them the way that you should. The way that most accurately reflects the Trinity. As a Christian, it's not just an idea that maybe you should do. We should all strive to live lives that most accurately reflect our God. The next one, humility. is um, In the Trinity, it paints for us a picture of deference or submission. We, we see the son, we see the father planning and the son saying, yes, I will o- go obey your plan. He submits himself under the will of the father and goes and obeys the will of the father to accomplish redemption. This does not diminish his deity. It does not diminish and make him like half a God because God made it up. Instead, he's still completely God, but he also, out of humility, obeys the will of the Father and goes. And so we see that present in the Trinity and it should be present in our lives. This means for us that we should live lives for the well-being of others. You're, you're going to live life for the well-being of yourself. There's no question. If you read Philippians 2, I mean, there's, it's clear that we're going to do that. Um, in Ephesians 5, we're going to do that. But we should also strive to live um, lives that are for the well-being of others, not just for self. We need to look to try to do things for the common good of the body of the church, not just for the common good of FUD. We can't do that. What most accurately reflects the Trinity is that we serve humbly. We serve humbly each other. So this means um, this particular application is going to be a Sunday-centric application in point in number three. Number four will be a, a week during the week application. For this means for us, the way that I think that we can humbly serve is this, that we can um, choose to be a part of putting the common good of the church over ourselves and serve this church on Sunday mornings. There's two ways that you can do that. We need people to serve in the kids area. We need people that will go down there once a month or twice a month to serve the children while others are up here. We have two services. You don't have to miss church. Or you can also set up or break down. We, we rent, so we have to put stuff out here and make the coffee and all that kind of stuff, and then we got to put it all back away. Now, <laughs> I know what you're thinking. I'm thinking it too. I want the set up and break down. That's what I'm signing up for. Listen, I know that that's the easier one, okay? But don't just default to the easier one because it's the easier one. Really push yourself and say, am I seeking the common good to actually do the kids' area? That's a Sunday-centric application, I know. Um, but if God's pushing you towards that, I invite you to go downstairs 
and talk to the lady behind the table and tell her, you know what, I think I might want to serve once a month. It just means you're going to be here. I doubt you're doing anything else on Sunday morning if you're coming here already, that hour that you would be serving. So that's, that's that. The next one is love. The next application is love. First John 4, 7, as I've referenced, God is love. Mark Driscoll says, the Trinity is the place the greatest joy and love has ever been. And so it serves for us as our illustration, as our way to understand love. So that means Remedy Church, the way that we most accurately can reflect the Trinity is that we must be marked by love, not by apathy. It's so easy for the church to turn inward and be apathetic to that world around them and not lift fingers or serve or get to know our neighbors or get to know this city or get to know people that don't know Jesus and be apathetic towards them and just serve ourselves. But what mostly reflects the Trinity is that we're loving, which means if you want a direct way to do that as part of this church, you can, and this is not Sunday morning, but during the week, you can go with the group that goes to the rock. It's just right there. I mean, you could walk to it from here. Renew our community. Where our, we've got a group that goes over there and serves the rock and helps the people that are in transitional needs in our city get back on their feet. You could also go with the, the, the group that goes to the Sterling Retirement Center where those people maybe don't get a whole lot of visitors. They don't have people that will come sing and read the Bible to them. Some of them can't read anymore and need to hear the word just as much as you do. You can go with our group and serve and that we would be marked by love, not by apathy. We do have time to do these things in our schedules. Or you can go with the group that goes to the children's attention home. There's, there's a children's attention home where these, these children don't have necessarily active parents in their lives or good mentors, and you can go with them and love on children. The church must be marked by love and not by apathy. The last one is this, and I'm probably most excited about this one, although I really like the other ones. Unity and diversity. We started with that. One of the things that's absolutely um, clear when we look at the Trinity is that they're one essence and three persons. All right, let's do this. Um, I know I've been talking forever, forever. So if you have been like checked out for the last 10 minutes, check back in with me because I'm, I'm really excited about this. I want y'all to be all with me on this one, okay? Unity and diversity. What most accurately reflects the Trinity is that we would, as a church, really pursue unity and diversity. First way is through our spiritual gifts. Every single one of you has, if you're a believer in Christ, a spiritual gift, a diverse array of gifts. There's giftings in Romans 12. There's giftings in 1 Corinthians 12. There's other giftings, and I think in Ephesians 4. Um, Jack's going to teach you on spiritual gifts in like two months. He's going to tell you everything you need to know about gifting. He's doing that, not me. So anyway, my point is, you, every single one of you have gifts, a diverse, diverse array of gifts, but we're all unified under Jesus. So every single one of you need to actively pursue using your gifts in this church. Don't say, well, you know, Jim's probably better at that than me, so I'm just going to take my gift and stick it on the shelf and not use it because he's just better at it. I can't do anything like Susie or Bob. And Don't do that. Every single one of you has a gift, and we want you to use those in this church. If you don't know your gift or you don't know how to plug your gift into this church, ask your community group leader this week, how can I use my gift in this church? If you're not in a community group, Go back up to application one. (laughs) Join a community group. But we need your spiritual gifts. We need diversity of gifts unified under the lordship of Christ. And here's the last one we're talking about unidiversity is culturally and ethnically diverse. God has graced the human race with many, many, many different ethnicities. And the way that we can most accurately reflect the Trinitarian nature of God is that we would have a church where we have members of many different ethnicities. This is what it means to be ethnically diverse, culturally diverse, but still unified under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Which means for us, we need to, we need to invite, and I'm not going to say to our church first, into our homes and into our lives. It's easy to invite somebody to church one hour a week. I'm saying invite into our homes and into our lives people that maybe are different than you, that think like you, have a different culture than you, that that look differently. Invite them into your home, invite them into your life, invite them into your community groups, all of your neighbors of all of different cultural and ethnic backgrounds. And invite them to church. Because this is the way that we as a church will most accurately reflect 
the unity and diversity that's in the Trinity. I think that that's what pleases the Lord. I'm, I don't just think it. I know that that's what pleases the Lord. And so that's all I have when it comes to the Trinity. So what I'm going to do now is turn, we're going to all turn to a time of worship. And so some of the things that you've heard, hopefully the Holy Spirit, um, the third person of the Trinity, has evoked your heart to want to give glory to God for this great gospel that he's done as we've learned more As we know him more fully, we should want to give him the proper affections. So we're going to stand and we're going to worship God. And Ben's going to lead us. I'm going to close us in a time of prayer um, and we will worship together. If you have any questions whatsoever about how to become a Christian or, or anything, I'll be right back there in the back corner. I'd love to have a conversation with you. You can find me after church as well. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this time where we can come together and worship. We can come together and worship under the word. We can worship under... Um, the song we can worship under giving. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being present, for teaching us. I pray, God, that you would come now as we worship through song, that you would fill us with the Spirit, that we would reflect back to you properly the right emotions and our outward forms of worship would be accurate with our inward feelings of our heart. However we're wired, we would give you the glory. I pray for anyone here who might be trying to understand this good news of the gospel, that you would lead them into truth and that they would trust Christ this morning for their salvation. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.